0: Good morning, Grace Point. How are you? It is so good to see you. Uh, If you're in sixth to twelfth grade and you want to head down to the Youth Environment, it's right down there. You can follow Higgins there. He's heading down. Um, And uh, can we thank our band? I mean, seriously. Thank you, Glenn. You know, one of the things that happens uh, in the wake of really any, any tragic event. I'm sorry. I'm like right in your business there. <laughs> it's like, I always tell people it's like the splash zone at SeaWorld, like right here in the front. Um, so one of the things that, and I saw some of this popping up on online is in the aftermath of the tornado this week. Pe- some people were saying, like, where's God when this sort of thing happens? And I think that where, at least where I see God in these sorts of things is in the aftermath and the people who show up and the people who show up with bottled water and diapers and chainsaws and people who show up to say, and I saw so many of you from Grace Point online saying, if you need a place to stay, if you need a shower, a warm meal, just come to my house, which is just a remarkable thing to open your home in that way. And so I, I think where we find God is wherever love and kindness and compassion are being extended in the aftermath of these sorts of things. And uh, so I, I think it's been as, as bad as the pictures have been, as bad as the experience has been, there's something beautiful that has emerged from Nashville. I don't know if you've since that too, but something beautiful in this community and it's such a great, great thing to be a part of, uh, the, the bigger community. So we've been in a series uh, talking called Rhythm and what we've been talking about since really the beginning of January has been progressive, as progressive Christians, one of our struggles tends to be, we don't know what to do with some of the stuff we were brought up with. Specifically in this context, spiritual practices. Things like prayer, reading your Bible, like all that sort of stuff. What do we do with that now? And so we've been exploring, and this has really been a, a discovery experience for me as much as it has been teaching something, because I, I sometimes have wondered, what do I do with these things? Uh, and I hope what we've kind of been able to establish over these weeks has been that there, there is a way to bring them and integrate them into a vibrant, robust progressive uh, Christian faith. I wanna wrap this series up today by talking a bit about what we're doing right now, which is gathering together, worship, whatever language you wanna put on. I wanna talk about what is this thing that we're doing, what's the purpose of it, and why should we keep doing it? Now, I wanna say on the front end, I've been a a professional Christian for like 20 years, which means I've never experienced brunch in any real meaningful way because I'm always at church. Um, And it also means that sometimes when people like me start talking about this, we have sort of a vested interest in people showing up. So I wanna say on the front end of this, there are people who have been so traumatized and wounded by church that taking a break and, and being out of it is the exact right thing to do. And so what I'm saying saying today is not, hey, do you have friends who don't go to church? Just go convince them they should do this. If it's a thing that would be helpful to them in their journey, please invite them to join us. But I also don't wanna have this sense of, well, we're actually not recognizing that church has been a part of a lot of trauma for a lot of people, and it has left us all with with baggage at times. And so what I'm I'm gonna share with you today is why I do this, beyond the fact that I'm a professional Christian, whatever that means, beyond the fact that this is my job, like why am I still doing this? But I wanna start with, um, and this is an interesting phrase, right? Going to church. Like it's a phrase uh, I grew up with, I'm sure a lot of us did. And I was reflecting on this week on why did I go to church as a kid? Partly it was because that my parents were my ride to go anywhere and they made me go, right? Like I, you know, nine months before I was born, I was at church. And my grandfather was a pastor. So, you know, the whole Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, anybody else have to do that? The Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, and that was sort of my experience growing up. So I went to church basically because I had no other choice. It's where my family went and that's where I went. Um, but there were so- several subtle messages that I began to pick up about why people, especially grownups who get to decide why, why they went to church. One big reason is hell. Um, is because people were kind of told, if you don't show up at church, where are you gonna go? you're gonna to go to hell, right? And not even if you don't show, maybe if you don't show up like two out of four, you're probably in trouble, right? Like, so there was this sense of we show up, we, we spend an hour together every Sunday because an hour we spend together is an hour less we'll spend in hell later, right? Because we're doing the right thing. And so there was always, for, for me growing up, there was always a sense of a threat hanging over the whole thing, right? It was sort of like, hey, come on, this is gonna be great or else, right? It had this sort of connotation to it. Uh, Another reason why is because of attendance awards. Um, How many of you ever, it's true, it's a real thing, right? 14 years. right here, we've got a winner. Um, How many of you went to church and they gave you a little star to put on a sticker chart? Anybody have this happen to you? And often there'd be prizes, like you memorize the most Bible verses, which is a great way to get your propaganda out. You memorize the most Bible verses and now you suddenly have gotten an extra star and then you get a prize. It was really, 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 Uh, motivating for me as a kid to show up and memorize the Bible and be there because I got something out of it. Uh, uh, The other thing is like, there's a sense of collective shame. Like when you miss church for a while, has anybody ever been through that where you you haven't been to church in a while and you see somebody from church out and now you both don't know what to do? Like it's, it's just a, it's a mutually awkward situation where if they say, hey, I've missed you at church, it sort of sounds all judgy, but if you just open up with, well, I, I've meant to be there, but my dog, and then behind then like, then it seems like you're just trying to, like, it's just a weird situation. And sometimes if we don't know how to handle, like, what do you say to somebody as a pastor? I've I've been on both sides of the coin where I've said something to somebody about missing them and they fleeced me and said, I can't let you know every time I'm gonna miss. And there's times I didn't say something to the exact same person, they were mad at me because I didn't say anything to them. It's a really confusing thing, but shame often ends up being one of the major motivators. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? Well, because I don't wanna be shamed for not doing it. Right, and then the last one for me really came down to, I just couldn't go anywhere else to find an equally yoked date. Um, and those of you who are laughing know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is our story. If you grew up evangelical, you were continually reminded about being equally yoked, which I thought had something to do with a Y-O-L-K at one point. Like, I didn't know what it meant. Uh, and you had to find somebody who was shared your spiritual depth and your correctness. And the way you know that the person is right is that they agree with you. Right? because you are the arbiter of what is right and good. And so you find somebody who agrees with you, you're totally equally yoked. And so that's why you know around prom time, attendance at church just boomed because everybody's looking for a date and you can't invite somebody who's not from your tradition, right? Like those are reasons I went to church for a long, long time. I, I, w- I just wanted to avoid the whole shame, hell. I wanted to get awards for it. I wanted to find a date. Like there's all sorts of reasons, right? But, but 20, 20 years later, I've been doing this with my life and I still come to church. And I don't just come to church because it's my job. I actually f- have found for me that being a part of a community like this and gathering together and spending time does something to me. It does something in me. It does, and I hope eventually it does something through me. And so I just wanna explore today, why do we keep showing up to church? Why do we keep getting up and coming to a place and singing some songs and saying some prayers and doing some ritual. Why, why do we do this? I, I wanna say this, I don't think we do it for God. We, we, we don't go to church for God. Um, it, it's not like that God needs us to come to church to tell God how great God is, um, which during my college years, that was sort of, there was sort of this boom in a particular kind of theology that the whole point was to make God famous. Anybody know this? I'm like, if God's not famous by now, what am I gonna add to it? Like, since the beginning of creation, God, and now I'm gonna make God famous in a way that God hasn't been famous before. or Like your whole life is about giving, you know, making God seem bigger and more glorious and more. I don't think that's why we come to church. If I come to church to tell God something about God because God's ego needs it, we need a different God. Uh, a God who, whose ego I can scratch and inflate is, is way too small of a God. So I don't think we come for God. I actually, and this is gonna sound weird, I guess on the front end, I think we come to church for us. I think we get up, I think we get dressed, I think we drive over here, we fight with traffic, whatever we do, we do it for us. Because what happens in this space does something to us, does something in us, does something through us. I I think that church, before church is ever about me and God, church is way more about me and you. And it's a way more about something happening in me and you that sends us into the world in a way that leaves the world better than we found it. I love what Brian McLaren says um, in his book, um, Finding Our Way Again. If spiritual practices are actions within our power that help us become the kinds of people who can do things currently beyond our power. So here's what he's saying. Spiritual practices is essentially like exercise. Um, do we have any runners in the, in the room? Anybody who just loves to run? Not, when people aren't chasing you, you just enjoy it. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I, I have run for a few, I actually intended to run this morning, and, but when I woke up, time change happened and I decided not to. Uh, but um, what do you do when you run? Let's say if you wanna run a marathon, right? Like, I'm gonna run a marathon, it's what I'm gonna do. Do you wake up that morning and run a marathon? No, no, I actually do have a friend who decided one day he was gonna start running and ran seven miles the first time. That's not the norm, but that's still not a marathon. If you wanna run a marathon, what you're probably gonna do is you're probably gonna start with walking and then maybe start with jogging maybe a half a mile. Then you're gonna pick it up to a mile. Then suddenly you're thinking about entering a 5K and then maybe a 10K. And then suddenly you're somehow at a half marathon and you're working your way up. He says, this is what spiritual practices do. They enable us to transform. They enable us to become certain kinds of people in the world. They, they give us things to practice. So while I may not just have entered the world a completely generous person, maybe I'm, I'm doing with, with some fear in my brain and some scarcity mindset, but what practicing generosity does is it enables me to break that and become a truly generous person. So that's what he's talking about. If that's the case, going to church means gathering for communal spiritual practices, engaging in a kind of group workout, if you will. In doing, in so doing, the community that carries on a way of life and its practices calls people together weekly or seasonally or annually to reaffirm their commitment and practice being a community. Isn't that great? Like, when we get together, we're here for a kind of communal workout. And I think you can totally count this on your Nike app or your health thing. Like, just tell people, like, what did you do this morning? I worked out for an hour or so and it was really, really fun, right? Like, that's what we're doing. We're communally exercising together. And this idea of being together in the early Christian, began with the early Christian church. Like, it wasn't something that they invented later. This sense of belonging and togetherness, the sense we need to be around each other was part of their DNA early on. In the book of Acts, it describes the early church like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day. They met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The the phrase that stands out to me is the everyday part. Every day, every day. There was a sense of regular, now I'm not saying we should do this every day, right? But I'm saying in this early community, there was a sense of a a longing to be present and together because what was happening in them, um, when they like gathered and they went out into the world, they were able to do more because of this communal experience that had together so i just want to share a few things that if if gathering together in worship or whatever you call this is a spiritual practice meaning that it's supposed to open me up and transform me how does that work and i just want to share a few ways for me and i bet you have other ways um and be super interested to hear those but i want to begin with this and we've talked about this a lot in this series but it it, it fosters a sense of interdependence and I, i think we have to keep coming back to this because we live in sort of a culture that prizes our independence so much, at the, often at the expense of everything else. And I think what I'm learning now is that actually, we, we forget our interdependence at our own peril. There's actually a book that came out in the early 2000s called The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Did anybody read this book? It's got a fishbowl in the front with a fish jumping in it. Anyway, this is a book about um, societal inequality. And what they find in the book as they're doing studies is that societies that have great amounts of inequality and disconnection are actually far sicker than societies that don't. Which may sound like duh on the front end, but when you think about it like this, in societies where there's a growing gap between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor, what they discovered was not only are the poor in that society sicker and struggling more with mental health and, and food security and all that stuff, but the richest of the rich are also struggling with similar issues like mental health and struggling with uh, a sense of connection. To, so, so it's like. At both ends of the ladder, in a society where the gap is getting wider and wider, everybody is sicker. Societies that are unequal tend to be sicker in all the ways. Why is that? Because human beings exist in community. We exist together. And when we prize our own independence at the, at the expense of the community, we're, we're missing something. When we lose the common good, when we fail to engage in what I, I like to call collaborative humanity, doesn't that sound great? Like, it sounds like you're really doing something collaborative humanity where we realize that it, it, we live in an ecosystem and that every action in the ecosystem affects everybody else. Right, and that what we are doing is going downstream. And what pe- other people are doing is coming downstream to us. In this reality that we really are dependent on each other in more ways than we could possibly begin to mag- imagine. And we divide ourselves up in really strict ways when we create growing gaps between the people with power and the people without power. When we have spaces where certain people with power are welcome and certain people who don't have power aren't welcome. Something's tragically wrong. And that society is a sick society. A few weeks ago, we were in uh, D.C. and we arrived on Saturday night, and we were headed to our Airbnb for the night. And we, when you land at um, Reagan, I don't know how many of you been. When you land at Reagan, you're going into the city. Like you can see the Washington Monument, and you know the Capitol's like over here. Um, and we're actually we're headed that our Airbnb was near the Capitol, and so we're headed down to this underpass. And there was an entire tent city of people who were living, who were experiencing homelessness, right there, within walking distance to the center of power of our, our society and our country. And it just totally floored me when I saw that image. And I thought, my goodness, the most powerful, wealthy country the world has ever known. The seat of our power is over there. And some of our citizens are still. This is not a new problem. This is, this is an empire problem. It's a problem that's been around a long, 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 long time. But a society that can live in that without, like, we, we need to make some changes, right? There's something s- sick about our society when we can see other human suffering and it doesn't do something in us that causes us to act. I think fostering a sense of interdependence is what church is partly about for me. It's making me realize, does anybody else do this thing in school when they put you in a group project, you were just like, just let me do it. Is anybody else just so annoyed? Like you've already gotten the answer and you're waiting on three people to come up with the answer you've already gotten. And you're like, you do that with your ki- I do this sometimes with my kids. Well, they'll be figuring something out, I'm like, I could do that so much faster, right? Well, you're also 35 years older, but still it doesn't matter. Like there's this sense of just let me do it. No, 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 no. Interdependence, realizing that we need each other and that if something is not good for you, then ultimately it's not good for me because we are, in, we are connected in some sort of way. So I think church helps me remember that it helps me remember that I, I i'm meant to do life and be a part of life and live life in connection and proximity to other human beings and that as i do that i'm reminded that i'm not the only one with needs and i'm not the only one with opinions and i'm not the only one who um, has hopes and dreams second I, I think that church is a way to remember jesus and that's what it's become for me and I, I put the hyphen there intentionally it's a way to remember jesus when the first christians their practice was gathering together and eating bread and sharing life and doing, essentially what they did is they did all the things that they were doing when Jesus was with them. They just kept doing them, right? Jesus would throw parties, Jesus would have meals, Jesus would heal, Jesus would do all this stuff and they just kept doing it. And what they began to discover is that as they were doing those things, they realized that the Jesus they had known was still with them. And that through their action, through what they were doing in the world, they were remembering, I almost use the word reincarnate, but I, I know that can be a little tricky, but what I mean is Jesus, like it's incarnating Jesus. Once again, it's putting flesh and blood on sort of what we have turned into a principle or a theological category, right? J- Jesus is essentially remembered, reconstituted, reincarnated, brought into the world through the community. And I find when when I'm looking for Jesus in the world and where Jesus is at, it is always, always, always found in human beings re-embodying him to the people around them. What what have we seen this week in in the aftermath of this this, this terrible disaster? We have seen people remembering Jesus, re-embodying this way of living, re-embodying this generosity and compassion and care re this healing spirit that Jesus brought into the world. And I, I think when we gather together, and I'm especially attuned to this during communion where we're taking bread and we're taking wine is this way of talking about the, this Jesus who poured himself out and inviting us to be poured out. But before we can be poured out, we have to be poured in. Before we can go out there and incarnate, we have to be reincarnated in some way and be remembered. And I think that's what Jesus, I think that's is what happens here. I think a community that's following the, the, the Jesus path Um, that's a place where you would expect to see Jesus popping up all over the place, right? And I think that's what happens in the early church. I think that's what happens so many beautiful times in this community. By the way, did you know the first Christians weren't called Christians? They were called followers of the way. They were were known not for their beliefs, but for their way of being in the world, through their way of relating in the world. And so to today, we often want to be known as believers or people who, be, who believe a certain thing hold a certain creed, do, no, 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 it's about the way. What, what if we lived in this way? And I think that's what church reminds me of. Uh, it also, being a part of a community like this reminds me that there are things to resist in the world. And that in so many ways, a church, when it's integrated into the path of Jesus, really is a community of resistance. And it's a resistance against all the ways we dehumanize each other. It's a resistance against all the ways we divide each other up in the world. It's a resistance between people who have and have not. It's a resistance between all the ways we essentially want to say we're completely independent and isolated. You stay in your corner and I'll stay in mine. And church essentially says, no, actually we need each other. And when we come together, we're making a profound statement about how we think the world should be run. There's this great line in uh, Galatians three where Paul is writing to this community and uh, Paul Paul can sometimes get get a bad rap and sometimes he may deserve it and sometimes it may be people writing in his name and he gets blamed for it. Either way, Galatians, in this letter to Galatians, there are some scholars who say that what Paul says here is the first articulation in human history of equality among the sexes, of egalitarianism. Right? And even among the rich and poor in a way. Here's what he says. You're all God's children through faith in Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All the ways in his culture, and I bet he would add some things if he were writing that today. But in his culture, all the ways that you were divided up, insider, outsider, rich, poor, male, female, all the ways that they were divided up, Paul says those ways are null and void in this space. When we're together, it is a radically egalitarian table. And that is a profound, powerful statement. But when we begin to live that way, when we actually begin to embody that outside of this space, that's that's when things change. That's when people take notice that, wow, it's one thing to come into a space and say, yes, we're all equal, but it's another thing when we march for it. It's one thing to come into a space and say, you know what, we we don't believe that people should be treated this way. But it's another thing when we go out and stand up and say, no, they're not going to be treated this way. I think the Jesus movement is a resistance against hate and dehumanization, even the dehumanization of our enemies. Because if we can dehumanize them, we can eventually get rid of them. And I think the ultimate dream of God is not getting rid of our enemies, but it's seeing our enemies transformed and seeing justice, restorative justice be brought to situations and seeing actual human flourishing. I think that's the point. And I think church is a place where we can say, nope, we're not gonna be divided up that way and we're not going to be exclusive. We're not going to do that. We're going to articulate a different vision for a world where everybody has a seat at the table, where everybody has a voice, where everybody is valued, seen, and embraced. That's the world we're living for. I think church is a way to remember that. There are things we're standing up for. Then let me end with this. I I think church for me ultimately has become another uh, sort of sacrament. We've been talking about the word sacramental in this series And it means a thin place. The idea is it's some sort of practice or experience that sort of makes the veil between the seen and unseen separate, right? It's a thing that makes us encounter the divine in some sort of more profound way. And when I think about church, I'm now thinking about this. Church for me is a place where uh, the line is blurred between the seen and unseen, between what we can see, touch, taste and smell and something more. And here's why. It's not because of where we meet, although in this space, beautiful. But it's, it has really nothing to do with the space. It has nothing to do with when we meet, right? Nine and ten forty-five. Those aren't specifically special times. It doesn't really even connect with how we meet, uh, what we do when we're together. Ultimately, what makes church for me sacramental is the who, and that's all of you. When you show up in a space when you make your presence known, God is present. There's actually a really beautiful um, line in Genesis 1, the creation story where God is creating the first humans and God essentially says, let's create humans in our image to bear our image into the world and to care for creation as our image bearers. So right away in the beginning of the story, what we're told about humans is that we are some sort of uh, mysterious mixture of spirit and soil, of the divine and dirt. Right, that what happens in us is these things that we often think are separate are brought together. Right, that we in some way make God known to everything in creation around us. And this is true of every single human being, even the difficult ones, even the the ones that cause us, like every human being was entered into this world bearing the divine image. And, And I think what ends up happening is we forget. To be human is to be a living, breathing sacrament. We are extraordinarily ordinary, and yet in some beautiful way, whatever the word God means and points to can only really be experienced through interaction with another human being. There's something about interacting with another human being that opens us up in really, really profound sorts of ways. And when we forget that, that's where we go off track. When we forget that the people even we disagree with, and I bet that if we were to sit down, every one of us and just say, here's everything I think about everything, If we didn't disagree about religion, which it seems like there would probably be some disagreement at times, if we didn't disagree about politics, because nobody ever disagrees about politics, I think we could get through everything and then we would probably get tripped up on like, what are the 10 best movies of all time? But no matter what happens, I bet you we've got some disagreements. And what I think is the powerful thing is that when, when we forget that before we're anything else, before we're any label, we are an image bearer of the vine. When we show up, God is present. When we forget that, it allows us to go off track in all sorts of ways all of humanity's greatest disasters that we've inflicted upon ourselves and others is ultimately brought about because somebody forgot that the people they hated were God's image bearers too. And, and I, I think in the progressive world, there is sort of a tendency to begin to think that way about people who don't agree with us too. And I, I don't think we need another fundamentalism I think we need a movement that can look at other human beings and say, I disagree with you and I find what you're doing completely offensive and I'm going to resist it, but I I see God because you are a living, breathing human being and I refuse to hate you. There's something profound about being able to enter into that discussion. Because when we forget that, when we're yelling at people about how great love is, (laughs) right? Like it's just a little confusing to people. Like what? you're talking about love, but yet you seem really, 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 really not loving about it. So what do we do? I think it's about awareness. I think ultimately it's about us being able to remember the things that matter most and remember who we are and what our role is in the world. And, for, and so I think church is a way to remember, right? It's a way for me to remember that um, there's work to do in the world and the way I do it matters. I am wanna show you a picture. It's a picture of a uh, guy playing a violin at a subway station in Washington, D.C. I wanna share a bit of this story. Next. Washington, D.C. Metro Station on a cold January morning in 2007, man with a violin played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, just under 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing, He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds, then he hurried to meet his schedule. Four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat and without stopping, continued to walk. At six minutes, a young man leaned against the wall to listen, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. 10 minutes, a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look back at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. I don't know, I think this is just what kids do, by the way. Like, you're trying to get them somewhere and they're refusing to go with you. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their child to move more quickly. Forty-five minutes, the musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of $52.17. After an hour, he finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed. No one, whoop. No one applauded, nothing else happened. Um, No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before, he played a concert in Boston where average seats cost a hundred bucks. Right, I mean, people were walking by and a guy's holding a $3 million violin, playing some of the most difficult music to play and nobody notices. I think this is where we tend to live. The moving on by, the getting to the next thing, the pushing through, the not stopping, that I got a schedule to keep, everything has to be like this, I've got to get through it. And then there are moments when we stop and we, we realize. I think church tends to be, for me, one of those moments that help me stop and realize. That somebody's playing a $3 million violin and I need to be present to enjoy it. One of the foundational stories of the Bible, the Exodus story begins when a shepherd named Moses notices a bush that has been burning and he goes over to see what's going on because it's not consumed. And a voice says to him, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And the debate has been among rabbis and thinkers is did the bush just start burning that day or did the bush always been burning? Did the ground just become holy or had the ground always been holy? Was there a guy playing a three and a half million dollar violin the whole time? and there are moments when we see it. My, my hope is that the, this series will help us lean into those moments where we see it, those moments where we engage. Use a quote by Frederick Buechner a few weeks ago, and I'll just wrap with it. If we weren't blind as bats, we would see that all of life is sacred. I wanna invite the band to come on up. Um, they're gonna lead us in one more song. If we weren't blind as bats, we would see that all of life is sacred. And I think that's what spiritual practices are trying to teach us, that it's easy to be attuned in the extraordinary. It's easy to be attuned when everything is sort of like, it's easy to feel something at Christmas time sometimes, right? Like, I mean, these big holidays, these big, but what we're being invited into a spiritual practice is being tuned in at a molecular level all the time. And so I hope that as we explored these, I hope that some of these will be helpful as we begin to move forward uh, and seek this next step of our transformative transformative journey. Let's pray. God, just as we sit in this room with other living, breathing human beings, reminded that in in our stories and in our scripture, this is where we find God. this mixture of spirit and soil. Give us eyes to see the bush is always burning, the ground is always holy. There's a brilliant musician playing a three and a half million dollar violin over there. We just weren't aware. Give Give us the courage to rethink how we're living, the pace we're living, the schedule we're keeping. And our prayer is that as we gather together in this space week in and week out, that we leave invited into one more step of transformation, that we leave invited into whatever the next moment movement for us looks like. We're grateful that we really do get to be together in this in this family, that there's no one who's left out, that there's no one who doesn't matter. And may we enter into that spirit ever more deeply. We're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen.